the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Welcome again, folks, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We're always so pleased when you join us here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word, in Orlando. Uh, we get on the air because of the engineering skills of Pete Paquette. Uh, he's a veteran and a good one. And uh, Andrew Herdaliska produces the show for us each weekend. Jim Smith joins us in this first segment, theology professor at Friends University in Wichita, Kansas. He's the executive director of the Apprentice Institute for Christian Spiritual Formation. And we're going to talk about his book, The Good and Beautiful You, Discovering the Person Jesus Created You to Be. Jim, welcome to Orlando. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. Good to, good to hear you again, Pat. Thank you. What's the, uh, what's the story of the, on this book? What's the background? Well, the background of this book, it's actually the fourth book in a series. Uh, I wrote a book called The Good and Beautiful God, The Good and Beautiful Life, and The Good and Beautiful Community, and I thought that trilogy was done. Those those books came out in 2009, 2010, and 2011. Um, but a few years later, a friend of mine who'd used the books in England in ministry, he said to me, uh, I think you're missing a book, which is a strange thing to tell an author uh, who's written a trilogy. But I said, okay, what am I missing? And he said, you need a book that's titled A Good and Beautiful You. Mm. And I said, why? And he said, because people have really toxic narratives about God, and your book, The Good and Beautiful God, helps with that. But people have equally toxic self-narratives, really bad views of who they are. And if you could write a book that would help people with that, that would that would be wonderful. So um, I knew in my gut, Pat, that that was the thing I needed to do, but I wasn't ready to write it. But uh, it took about five years to get there, mm. uh, but I did finally write it, and so the book came from that from that initial discussion. Jim, you opened the book with a chapter called You Have a Soul. Uh, what are you writing there? Well, I, we live in a world that defines us as a self. Um, we think of ourselves as a self. In, in many bookstores, the self-help section is one of the biggest sections. And when we define ourselves as a self, that usually means that I'm an isolated individual in competition with other people. And therefore, I have to establish my worth on the basis of how I look, what I do, what I have. And it sets us into a place of competition and insecurity and measuring our worth in the wrong ways. I, I say in this book that you, you need to begin by thinking that I am a soul. I'm an embodied soul that was designed by God before the foundation of the world. God intended me to be in, in the person that I am, and that is, what, that is my significance. That's what makes me unique. That's, that's, I'm perfect as I am because of that, 
And so in that chapter, I try to say, look, you have a soul. It has a lot of needs. It needs to be loved. It needs to be forgiven. It needs to be holy. It wants to be pure. It wants to have a mission. And that is what drives the soul. So I want to get people thinking right away that I'm not just a self-isolated. I'm a, I'm a soul connected to something more, larger. Author Jim Smith is with us. We're talking about his book, uh, The Good and Beautiful You. Second topic for you, Jim. You have a sacred body, you write. Boy, this is an important one, and I put it as the second chapter in the book because it's so important. We have bodies, and I think sometimes we have really negative views of our bodies. We think of our bodies as maybe, well, certainly imperfect because we measure them against other people's bodies, and our bodies don't measure up and so forth. But, you know, our bodies are actually uh, very sacred. God designed us to, to have bodies. If I want to find you, Pat, I'm only going to find you in your body. Your body is where you are, and it is this beautiful, unique, fearfully, and wonderfully made uh, organism that is essentially who you are. And we know that when someone harms our bodies, they're really harming something deep within us because our bodies are sacred, and, and that's what I try to say in that chapter. Now I want you to move on to topic number three. It's called You Are Desired. Yeah, the, the, deep, the deep need, I think, of our soul, um, one of the deepest needs any human person has is the need to be, to be wanted, to, to feel like that, that someone wants me and that, that uh, I'm not an accident. There's a, there's a view in the, in the secular world that I'm just a, an accidental lump of mass that somehow ended up here in the universe and then I'm going to die. Um, but we have this deep, need to feel like somebody somehow wants us in a, in a unique way that we were, I guess a good word is chosen that got, that somehow we were selected. You know, when, when, when you're on the playground and, and people are picking sides for a sport or kickball or whatever it is, uh, you want to be chosen. You want to, you want someone to want you. And, uh, in that chapter, I try to say that you are wanted by God and, um, you are wanted by other people, even if they can't express it very well. But it's a deep longing of our soul. Now it's time to move on to uh, topic four. You uh, simply write, you are loved. Well, gosh, we all want to be loved. And um, again, as I said earlier, we live in a world that values us on the basis of how we look, what we do, and what we possess. And that's a very kind of conditional kind of um, love or acceptance. And if that's all we can get, we'll, we'll do it. We'll try to improve our bodies. We'll try to improve our status, our achievements. And then maybe someone will give us some love. But deep down, deep down, Pat, we, we want to be loved just without any condition for who we are. And in this chapter, I try to say that in your essence, that's who you are. God loves you as you are. God loves you not because of what you do, how you look, what you achieve. And uh, it's a deep longing is, is for unconditional love. Love no matter what I do. Now, let's move on, Jim, to uh, your next topic. You are made for God. What does that mean? Yeah, what, what I mean by that is that our souls come, and I like to put it this way, Pat, is that our souls come factory loaded with a, with a need for God. Um, Blaise Pascal, the great philosopher-scientist, said that there's a God-shaped hole in the heart of every person that we're made uh, to be connected to God. 
And that hole just can't be filled by anything other than God. But here's the thing. we got to have that hole filled. And so we'll fill it with something. We'll fill it with a career or um, some kind of uh, goal or achievement that we think is going to do it. Or maybe it's going to be um, following our favorite sports team that's going to give us that, or, or a, a relationship's going to fill it. But the thing is, that need can only be met by God, a transcendent longing to be connected with something much bigger than us. And that simply doesn't go away. You can't, you can't get rid of it. It's true, really, of all the needs of the soul. Um, we can try other ways to fill those needs, but that need is, is as I said, pre-built into who we are, and uh, we're going to have to find a way to connect with God. Now, here's the thing, though. God doesn't force himself on us. Uh, I sometimes wish he would, but God doesn't want us to be forced into loving him. So God allows us that chance to choose him, and that's why I love the verse in, in Jeremiah. If you seek me, you will find me. And that's a crucial verse, if you, Jeremiah 29. If you seek me, you will find me. That's God's promise, and that's always true. Anybody who turns to God will find him, and then they'll find that need of the soul met, that because we're all made for God. My guest is Jim Smith. Jim is a theology professor at Friends University in Wichita, Kansas. His book is out, The Good and Beautiful You, Discovering the Person Jesus Created You to Be. Jim, we've arrived at topic number six. You are forgiven. Yeah, well, <clears throat> here's, here's what we also know about, about human persons. Um, we are broken, and we sin, and we stray. We, we fall from God. We are prone to wander, <clears throat> and that's putting it lightly. We can make a real mess of our lives, and um, we have a need, and I, again, this is a need of our soul, to be forgiven. So when someone does something really wrong, when I hurt someone, uh, and there's a part of me that knows that, we might call it our conscience, but we, we want to have that relieved. The burden of guilt is, is heavy on our souls. And particularly when it's in relation to God, and we feel like we've really wronged God. But what I try to say in this chapter is that God in Christ has forgiven us all of our sins. And that's what's so beautiful about the cross, is that Jesus didn't forgive just some of our sins. He forgave all of our sins for all time. And I even say something radical in this chapter. Jesus already forgave you for sins you haven't committed. Uh, and that's because of the power of the cross. It doesn't give us license to sin. It doesn't mean that I could just do what I want. But that need to be reconciled, to be connected to God, is so deep, and my sin prevents that. But God, in Christ, has stepped in and said, I will take care of that. That God in Christ, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, God in Christ reconciled the world to himself. And um, that is a beautiful thing in our soul. Uh, I, mean, I, I love that line from the hymn, It is well with my soul. Mm. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. He's nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. That's what I'm trying to say in that chapter. <laughs> and it says it all in that one verse of the hymn. Jim, let's move on to uh, topic seven. Um, this sounds very interesting. You have been made alive. What does that mean? Yeah, you know that old phrase, man alive. Um, we and we aren't just forgiven in order to just do nothing. We're Christ on the cross forgave us so that Christ could put his life in us. And so 
That's why Jesus said pretty consistently that if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to be born again or born from above. And so Jesus' mission wasn't to um, just get us into heaven when we die. His mission was to get heaven into us now, to, to raise us to new life. So he died, he reconciled us through his death, but he saves us by his life. And the life of Christ comes to us when we put our confidence and trust in him. Otherwise, I'm just a forgiven dead person. Like, I, like Christ, like a, a non-believer is a person who's been forgiven. They just, they don't know it. They don't embrace it. Christ, Christ, Christ's death on the cross secured that. But it's when we turn to God in faith and confidence, name him as Lord, now we're born to a new life. And that's what we were designed for. Because here's the thing, our souls were made for an adventure. It's why we love, uh, it's why we love movies that, like Lord of the Rings or the Star Wars movies or Indiana Jones. We, we, we want to be a part of an adventure, and, and that's, that's a longing of the soul. The kingdom of God is the greatest adventure, and living as Jesus' apprentice is the best invitation the world's ever been given. We've been made, we've been made alive for an adventure. And now, uh, Jim, tell us about topic eight. You have been made holy. Uh, explain that. Yeah, well, this one is <clears throat> one of the more challenging ideas because, as I said earlier, we know we know that we're sinful and broken, and yet, very consistently, Paul, uh, in his epistles, his letters in the New Testament, he'll address them to the saints, to the saints at Corinth, for example. And we know that the people at Corinth weren't saintly in all their behavior, but what, what we learn from the New Testament is those who have been forgiven— and been made alive by Christ and born anew, they have been made holy. That's a really consistent theme. Um, now, I, I'm not made holy in, in all of my behavior, but what Paul wants us to do is to say, this is your identity. This is who you are. Um, and now live out of that identity. Live as if you have been made a sacred being, which you are, but, but the fact that Christ is in us now uh, be, Paul defines the, the Christian 89 times as in Christ or Christ in us. If Christ is in me, then I've been made holy. And if I've been made holy, then that's something that I want to live out of. That's my identity. So when I talk about you know, the title of the book, The Good and Beautiful You, a part of that is that you are holy. And I hope that people will recognize that they are holy and then live into that reality. Folks, I just want to remind you, uh, there's a break coming up uh, on this show. But before we do that, uh, just a reminder that my latest book is out. It's uh, it's called Every Day is Game Day, and uh, it's a 365-day devotional. I wrote it with my friend Mark Atterbury. And uh, every one of these devotionals has a sports story or sports anecdote and then leads into a, a spiritual lesson tied to that story. Um, I, I think it'll mean uh, mean something to you. You don't even have to be a great sports fan because uh, each story uh, brings a, a unique perspective. So when you're up ordering uh, Jim Smith's book, uh, The Good and Beautiful You, uh, pick up a copy of uh, Every Day is Game Day. Just a reminder, this is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We've been doing this show for many years here on uh, the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. And we're always so pleased when uh, you decide to plug in and join us and listen to these interesting guests that we're able to produce. 
More after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Don't go away. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Now, here's Pat. Uh, He is in uh, Wichita, Kansas. Theology professor at Friends University. We're talking about his new book, The Good and Beautiful You. And Jim, we've arrived at uh, topic number nine. Uh, You have a sacred story. Uh, Can you explain that to us? Yeah. You know, when we look at our lives, we we see that, you know, we we came into this world. um, We're born. We know our birthday. We celebrate that every year. Um, We recognize the family that we've been born into our parents, siblings, if we have them, uh, extended family, our community, the culture that we were born into. Um, and then we have a story. Everybody has a story. We, we grow up, we go to school, we have friends, maybe we graduate from high school, maybe go to college, maybe get a job, who knows what. But our lives take all these turns. We maybe get married, maybe have kids. But when we look at our lives, we, we really hope that they mean something. Uh, we hope that our lives mattered, and um, what I try to say in this chapter is that your story, even if it has you know broken parts of it, some trauma, um, some tough things that that all of us life is hard. We've all had things, losses. Um, maybe our parents were divorced. Uh, <clears throat> maybe we were harmed by someone. Um, we've suffered losses. But what I try to say in this chapter, Pat, is that. Your story is sacred. Your story matters to God, and God wants to step in and, and, and turn that story into something new, that, that even though we may look at our story and say, I don't know if my life mattered, God wants to come in and say, I want you to realize your life matters. Your story is itself sacred, and, and that's just a deep need of the soul. How about uh, topic number 10, you are called. Explain that. Well, that's similar to the, what we just said. Um, the idea that I want my life to matter, I think we all kind of wonder, what am I called to? Like, what is my vocation? Um, the, the Latin word vocare, where we get vocation, means to call. And we wonder, am I called to anything? And a deep need of the soul is, is to, to feel like I'm, I'm here for a reason. I'm here for a purpose. And as Christians, we believe that our mission, our calling, is to glorify God. But that's going to happen in very different ways. Um, I'm a college professor, uh, a scholar, a writer. That's, that's my calling. That's what I do. Um, people may be called to business. They may be called to raise a family. They may be called to, um, to be an artist. It, it, there's so many ways that people are called to something. And I also say in this chapter that, in my experience, uh, we have usually more than one calling. Uh, our life takes a lot of different turns. I tell the story in, in that chapter about my father-in-law who, who thought he wanted to go in ministry as a young man, but he had a, a pastor say, if you can do anything else, you should. And so uh, he thought, well, I do kind of like engineering. And so he became a chemical engineer, and he worked in New York City, and um, he was there for 35 years. And he kept kind of wondering, is this, is this my calling? Is this what I was, my life was supposed to be? But during that time, you know, he lived with integrity uh, he led Bible studies at, uh, with his uh, fellow workers in, in New York City. Uh, he worked in his church. He was active in youth group work and all these things. 
But then at 55, he decided, I do think I want to try this. And so he actually went to seminary and, um, and after three years graduated and pastored a church for eight years and had a wonderful time. I use his story to say that uh, I think we can have more than one calling in our life. But the central theme is that we do want our life to, to matter again, as I said. And uh, we want to feel called to some kind of purpose. Now, Jim, I want you to uh, uh, unravel the last one. You will be glorified. Um, explain that to us. Yeah. Uh, well, look, one of the most difficult things in human life is death. And um, we, we can't hardly imagine our own death. And then when we have the death of, of people that we love, it's very painful. And if we've been to funerals, you know that feeling of, wow, is this, is this it? Is it over? Um, and, and one of the beautiful things about the Christian story is that, that it, it is not over, that we were designed to be glorified. Uh, Paul said, when Christ who is your life appears, then you will be with him in glory. And so uh, Jesus defeated death. And he said, those who believe in me won't even taste death. So we can have this confidence that um, our, our life doesn't end here, that there's something uh, going on. D.L. Moody said, if you hear reports of my death, uh, they will have been greatly exaggerated. I will, I will be more alive than ever. And so that's that's the truth I try to communicate in that chapter is to say that um, this life, while significant, is not the last word. That uh, we're unceasing spiritual beings with an eternal destiny in God's great universe, and we are designed uh, for glory. And we can experience heaven here now, but we are designed to live uh, forever with God, um, and and to continue to do creative things. It's not like we're just going to sit around on clouds with with a harp or something just not knowing what we're doing uh i I think heaven's going to be glorious itself so that's what i try to say uh, a part of the good and beautiful you is that you are designed even to continue on forever jim when you read those words from jesus in uh, john 14 uh, in my father's house are many mansions if it were not so Mm -hmm. i would have told you i go to prepare a place for you and if I go to prepare a place, I will receive you unto myself, so that where I am, you may be also. Uh, how do you envision that? Wow, I, I love that. Thank you for quoting that, because it is, it is true, right? And then <clears throat> Jesus said that. I believe in heaven because Jesus promised it, not because I long for it, though I do, but he promised it. And, uh, of course, we don't know exactly what that's going to look like. We have imagery and symbolism uh, throughout the, the New Testament particularly in Revelation, about what that's going to be like. But it is going to be glorious. And, um, you know, I I sometimes think whatever uh, the most beautiful things I've experienced in life, the most beautiful, good, and true things in life, that's what we will experience, is is how I envision it. Um, But uh, you've got that verse quoted, Pat. What what does that mean for you? What because that's clearly, I think, a verse that's important to you. Well, it it, it is. if If you were to ask me, uh, any part of the Bible that uh, I could only keep, and it would be those first six uh, verses of John 14. Mm-hmm. In my Father's house are many mansions, uh, <clears throat> I, I, I dwelling places. Uh, does Billy Graham get a, a an elite dwelling place, <laughs> or or is it yeah. some is it some lady uh, out in uh, the middle of the country who who just prayed for his ministry without fail? Uh, oh, that's beautiful. 
I mean, yeah. who, who uh, what, what does that mean? God will decide. But um, I can't, uh, in many ways, I'm happy with my life and enjoying my life immensely. Um, but uh, I am curious about the future. I'm uh, very intrigued about what that means. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to ask uh, veteran Bible scholars, you know, what, what do you picture? How do, how do you envision that? What's that mean to you? <laughs> so uh, <clears throat> uh, it's going to be beautiful and it's going to be exciting. That, that that's, uh, And I think you're right. I don't think we're just going to be sitting around playing harps. <laughs> yeah, I know. I ask people, do you like harp music? They're like, no, I don't really. Well, then maybe it's going to be better than that. Yeah, and I, I think God's going to put us to work. I think we're going to have a busy schedule. Yeah. I, I don't I don't think we were designed just to sit up there, but uh, it, it's going to be something. So, Jim, what do you want people to take from our chat? Well, I, I just hope people maybe caught a little glimpse of the truth of the wonder of who they are, that that God knew them before they existed, that God has loved them every second of their lives, that God has a significant plan for them and loves them more than they can possibly know and and has dreams for them that are bigger than they can dream. That That's what I hope for uh, in this conversation today, and, and certainly that's why I wrote the book. Jim, we've got about a minute. Can you tell me about Friends University in Wichita, Kansas? Yeah, thanks for asking. Yeah, the, so French University is a <clears throat> a, um, a, a liberal arts college of, of Quaker origin. We're a Christian college, and um, we have degree programs. In I, I work, I teach an undergraduate degree program in Christian spiritual formation. We have a master's program in Christian spiritual formation, and, and a new doctor of ministry program. Um, and so, the work I do is really helping train the, the next generation of leaders. In uh, in how to be <coughs> Jesus, and uh, it's just been a. Uh, I've been there thirty two years, Pat, and it's, it's it's. I love the place, and we do some good work. You mentioned at the front that I am the director of the Apprentice Institute uh, for Christian Spiritual Formation, and we have a, a national conference every year. Great speakers uh, come, and people come from around the country, um, and it's a it's a beautiful three day event at the end of September. So if people go to apprenticeinstitute.org, ApprenticeInstitute.org is um, the place they can learn about all the things that we do. I have a podcast called Things Above, and um, so I'd encourage people to check those out. Jim Smith has been our guest, author of The Good and Beautiful You. We've got more after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Jim Smith, our guest in that first segment, talking about his book, The Good and Beautiful You. Uh, We go from uh, Wichita, Kansas, where Jim is, uh, to Cedarville, Ohio. Matthew Bennett, Assistant Professor of Missions and Theology at Centerville University, His book is out, and boy, is it fascinating, The Quran and the Christian, an in-depth look into the book of Islam for followers of Jesus. Matthew, it's uh, very nice uh, to have you here in Orlando. How are you? Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show, Pat. I'm doing well. Matthew, how did this book come about? Why did you write it? Well, um, I spent about seven years living with my family in North Africa and the Middle East and uh, working among... Uh, Muslim-majority people um, have developed a, a love for Muslims. Um, that was 
partly what sent us there, but it's only increased in our time developing friendships and, and connections with neighbors that uh, that we relied on for a lot of uh, a lot of life uh, while we were living there. But throughout that time, definitely saw some of the uh, some of the distinctions between what Muslims believe, um, even when using some of the same words that we as Christians would use to describe the situation we're in. Things like sin and salvation and forgiveness uh, were words that my Muslim neighbors would use, but it always seemed like there was there was just some sort of a difference in how they were using it. And so uh, some of this is born out of a, a desire to dig into what are the formative texts that are influencing the way that my Muslim neighbors are using that shared language, and then can we identify ways that maybe the the common language actually is obscuring some some divergent meaning, so as to be able to better understand, better love, and ultimately better communicate to our Muslim friends. Matthew, how did the Quran come to be, including Muhammad and the Quran's textual precursors? <laughs> that is quite a question. Um, uh, there's a couple different ways to begin answering that. Um, I would say on, on one hand, uh, recently, maybe in the last hundred years or so, but even more prolifically in the last two decades, there have been a number of uh, textual critical uh, books that have come out and investigations that have uh, been conducted that have raised some very significant questions about where, where the Quran takes its origins. There's good reason to suggest that, uh, that maybe the, the traditional account is not exactly uh, true to history. Um, and so there's parts of that that this book hints at, some of the underpinnings that may have their origin in Jewish or Christian communities that would have been in the same region um, that would be writing in Syriac or other related languages that have come to influence the final form of, of the Quran. Uh, but I, I also think it's important for us, even if maybe some of the scholarly integrity of the traditional story is is a little bit questionable, I think it's really important for us as Christians who are motivated to share the gospel with our Muslim neighbors to be conversant with their understanding of where the book comes from, because in reality, that's what's forming them, uh, is the what they understand to be its origins. And so uh, there's a, a section of the book that kind of gives that traditional account as well, looking at Muhammad as the one who was born in the midst of a polytheistic milieu, and uh, of his own pious convictions determined that there couldn't be a plurality of gods, but there must be one god, and sought him out, and um, God saw fit to give him revelation of uh, a heavenly heavenly book in which he concluded what had been revealed in the books given to the, the Jews and the Christians before them. Now, finally, the, the last chapter of this heavenly book has been given to Muhammad and is binding on the community of all time, for all time. So, for our Muslim friends, that's, that's how they would answer the question. Um, which has a number of elements in it that we need to be thoughtful uh, about. If they're claiming to continue biblical history, um, what are they doing with that biblical history? What does the Quran intend to do with it? And those questions, uh, again, lead us to a place where mm -hmm. when our Muslim friends say, 
I believe in Jesus, I believe in Moses, I believe in Adam, um, it, it gives us pause to be able to say, well, who are those people in the story as you understand it? Because we're going to find that those common names, again, lead to different stories as articulated by both books. Matthew, what do we know uh, about Muhammad, the uh, the person, the man? Well, again, that leads us into that sort of two-pronged approach. On one hand, um, there are good reasons for us to recognize that uh, outside of Islamic sources, we really have very little attestation to a historical person named Muhammad, um, at least one who would correspond to the stories that the later Islamic traditions will build around this character. Um, you get uh, a whole host of writings within Islamic tradition that kind of appear on the scene a couple hundred years after Muhammad is traditionally thought to have, have died that fill in the gaps of his, his life story, um, typically understood to be passed along by oral transmission. Uh, but even within the records that the Muslim community would, uh, would have, of what Muhammad did, there's admission that some of these stories are coming out of um, well, politically convenient uh, articulations or rememberings of things that Muhammad did that seem to serve uh, the desires of the communities producing these stories more so than maybe correspond to history. And so there's a whole host of um, critical scholarship looking at that question that would say we really can't know very much at all about Muhammad apart from the traditional stories that tell us about him. And so, again, we find ourselves in a place where if we're going to know our Muslim neighbors, those questions about whether or not Muhammad existed or existed as Islamic records tell us he did are interesting academically, but ultimately uh, our Muslim neighbors have a, a whole host of stories about this person that are forming their worldview and forming their own actions. And so it behooves us to be familiar with what are the stories that they understand to be the case about this Muhammad. My guest, and uh, he's interesting, he's in Cedarville, Ohio, Cedarville University, the book, The Quran and the Christian, an in-depth look into the Book of Islam for followers of Jesus. The major themes of the Quran, Matthew, as I understand it, uh, and, and and these shape the practice of Islam. Uh, can you go over them with us? Yeah, I mean, uh, typically as uh, people who may be not as familiar with Islamic teachings look at the, the religion of Islam, the idea would be, well, as Christians we have a book in the Bible, Muslims have a book in the Quran, and so they probably function the same way. Uh, as soon as you pick up the Quran and begin to read it, you are pretty quickly confronted with the fact that this is a, a different sort of book. There's not really uh, narrative sections that tell about the religious history or in a chronological sense. Rather, throughout the book, um, you're introduced to a, a god who is sovereign, and uh, the extent of the relationship between this god and the material world is the relationship that a servant or slave would have to its master. Uh, so that shapes the way that the, the God of the Quran interacts with his creatures and, and through his prophets. And you'll see themes of God's um, transcendence. You'll see themes of God's 
mercy. Um, you'll see themes of God's absolute authority. And uh, under the understanding of a God who is characterized by those three things, the role of the reader is to see what God instructs his people to do and to fight our natural human weakness of memory, this memory struggle that we have to remember the law of God by uh, reshaping our, our thought life according to remembering the ways of God. So the, the Quran will refer to itself as a book of reminder. It likewise uh, sees humans as those who are innately prone to not submitting our will to God, and so it's also a book of guidance calling people who would uh, see themselves as the creatures of God to submit themselves to God. And so you get a whole host of instructions and commands uh, given throughout the Quran that are repeated over and over in different ways, calling people to remember God's law, to submit their will to him, and to trust that he will, in the end, be merciful. My guest is Matthew Bennett. Uh, he's in Cedarville, Ohio. We're talking about the Quran and the Christian. Matthew, uh, talk to us about the presence of Bible characters, Jews and Christians, in the Quranic text. What can you explain to us? This is probably getting closer to answering the question, why would I write a book about the Quran for Christians? And the reality is that Christians and Jews are uh, apparently characters within the Quran. In fact, some of our most beloved prophets and, and characters from the biblical account show up within the pages of the Quran and with, within Islamic uh, traditional teaching. And so for us, um, in conversation with our Muslim friends, we're going to encounter a number of different times and, uh, and points of apparent overlap between our faith, where we say, oh, your book talks about us, or your, talks about, your book talks about our characters. Um, and so at times, it could lead to some confusion, um, saying, well, what, what does the Quran do with Moses, with Abraham, with, with Jesus, um, and, and do we really share this common ground? And so for, for me, my burden in writing this book is to say, yes, there is a a claim being laid to some of these characters and some of this shared uh, shared history, but when we see it appearing in the Quran, it's actually dislocated from the biblical history and reintegrated into a whole new story that takes history and human purpose in a different direction. And so, my my desire is to help our uh, help our Christians who are relating to their Muslim neighbors to be able to identify some of those places where there may be shared language or shared characters, um, but to be able to see those as fruitful opportunities to engage in follow-up conversations with their Muslim friends or for themselves to go read the Quran and to be able to see how the characters that would, on the virtues of having a shared name with a biblical character, maybe present themselves as being common ground to be able to say, well, it's actually at this point that we may be miscommunicating with our Muslim friends by not clarifying that we're actually talking about two different people, or two different people at least within a different story. And so it's important for us to go beyond that superficial similarity, to ask some probing questions, and to be able to find ourselves uh, 
clearly communicating with our Muslim friends and clearly understanding them rather than just settling for uh, superficial similarity. Matthew, here's the big question. Should a Christian read the Quran? Mm -hmm. And if so, uh, how do you go about it? Yeah, I do think it is helpful for a Christian to read the Quran for all the reasons that I've set up till this point. I think being exposed to the way that the Quran shapes our Muslim neighbors in their approach to a relationship with God um, and their approach to relating to the world and in the way that they use the vocabulary that's going to be essential to us as we want to share the gospel with them. Uh, I think it's helpful for us to be able to see behind behind the veil what is informing some of the, the language and the, the worldview of our Muslim friends. I think the, the follow-up question, and this is a question that gets asked on the, the mission field a lot, is, well, if we should read the Quran in order to be familiar with it, are there ways that we should also use it in ministry? Should we capitalize on the fact that there are shared characters, um, that the Quran, uh, in some places, endorses the Bible, um, endorses the, the reading or the consultation of um, these, these prior texts to Muslim readers? Should we capitalize on that and, in so doing, uh, hope to get some communicative momentum with our, our Muslim friends and there, I think there's a caution, because we need to recognize that as Christians who believe in the sufficiency of Scripture and the closing of the canon, if we begin to lean into the Quran and endorse it as a source of truth and even revelation, all of a sudden we begin to raise a whole lot of confusion in, uh, in the minds of our Muslim friends, particularly if they come to faith later on to say, wait a minute, there's some very irreconcilable elements at core issues between what the Quran says about who Jesus is and what the Bible does. And so if we've already used the Quran and in so doing endorsed it as revelatory, I think we uh, sort of shoot ourselves in the foot. So I would encourage Christians to read the Quran in order to demonstrate uh, a, a sense of wanting to know their Muslim neighbors and give a uh, show them that they have taken the time to, to learn a little bit about the influences over their, their worldview. But at the same time, I think we need to be careful about, um, about using it in our evangelism, even in the places that might seem to be primed for, uh, for bridging into the gospel. Matthew Bennett is my guest. The book, The Quran and the Christian, we've got more. First, these messages on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour it's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Matthew Bennett is my guest. He's at Cedarville University. We're talking about the book, The Quran and the Christian Matthew, uh, how hard is it for a Muslim uh, to abandon their faith and become a, a Christ follower? Hmm. Well, I'm reminded of uh, something Jesus said about rich men and uh, camels moving through eyes of needles. Um, for Muslim people uh, born in Muslim families, particularly those living in Muslim-majority contexts and countries 
that uh, you know, most of the culture is influenced by Islam. The idea of leaving Islam to follow Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, uh, is to give up absolutely everything. It is a much more weighty decision in terms of the immediate impact it's going to have for a Muslim to follow Jesus than, than what most Western-born uh, people are going to face. The reality is that within Islamic societies, uh, Islam pervades everything. Uh, there's no sacred-secular divide because Islam is a totalizing worldview. And so for them to step out from underneath a, a Muslim identity and to follow Jesus is to not only change themselves religiously, but it's oftentimes to be abandoned by their family, uh, at times to be persecuted and even killed by their community, and to risk any potential for the future, I mean, even for, for women who would convert uh, to, to following Jesus out of Islam. They're asking questions of, well, who then can I marry? Because it's illegitimate in most Muslim-majority countries for a Muslim woman to marry a non-Muslim man. And so pretty much everything hangs in the balance for a Muslim considering Jesus. Matthew, uh, we're led to believe that the Quran is a violent book. Uh, is there truth to that? Uh that's a yes and no question in some ways. Uh, the the Quran does have some verses within it. Um, one famous verse called the sword verse in the ninth surah that is um, uh, that is referring to instructions given to fight um, and even kill the the unbeliever um, wherever you find them. Uh, however, uh, there is a doctrine of interpretation of the Quran that gives some balance to that. It's called the, the doctrine of abrogation. And this is a teaching that says that the verses that were revealed to Muhammad most recently, so the, the, the latest revealed verses, if they find themselves in conflict or tension with previously revealed verses, it's the most recently revealed ones that are binding on the community. So most Muslims would look at some of those violence commands, and they would say, well, that was given to a select community of Muhammad's followers during a particularly uh, tenuous point in their history where they were facing persecution and in, in danger of being wiped out. And so it was divine permission to attack in order to defend themselves. But the more peaceful instructions that uh, are found throughout the Quran as well, the call to live as in harmony with, uh, with those who will live in harmony with, with you, those are the things that are more recently revealed as the community of Muslims establish themselves, and um, these are the things that then become binding on contemporary practice. So that tends to be the way that the vast majority of Muslims will look at those verses within the Quran. Now, Matthew, explain to us how do we avoid miscommunication with Muslims when the Quran and Christian teaching seem to overlap? Yeah, I think uh, asking questions and listening well it would be my, my biggest encouragement. And that's 
the whole last section of the book looks at how do we do this? What what sorts of questions or even conversations do we need to um, ask additional clarifying question around words that are being used? Where do we where do we need to not settle for assumed communication um, in order to make sure that we understand the way our Muslim neighbor, our Muslim friend is using uh, the, the language that is central to some of our theological commitments. I already mentioned the idea of the, the concept of sin. Uh, within Islam, we share with Muslims a, a conviction around a number of shared ethical actions that we would uh, that we would say are sins, just like our Muslim friends would. But just because we share a list of common sins with them doesn't necessarily mean that the concept of sin itself is shared. And I think at that point it's helpful to dig underneath something that we might link arms with to say, you know, we, we believe that life is precious and should be protected. Well, most of our Muslim friends are going to say the same thing. But settling for where we agree rather than saying, okay, what, what's behind that? Why, why do you come to that conclusion that this is a, something sacred, something to be protected, can actually lead us down a path of greater clarity uh, towards asking what our Muslim friend really believes when they identify something as sinful or something as virtuous. And to be able to do that, we just need to develop skills of asking good questions and listening well so as to be able to provide a, a biblical vision of where places uh, that we might find some discrepancy or, or difference of story uh, fill in the gaps from our perspective. Matthew Bennett is our guest, author of The Quran and the Christian Matthew, what is a what is a Quran church service like? Uh, a, a Muslim gathering in the mosque. Yeah, what you're asking what, about? yes, or or here in in the United States. I mean, if you went to a a service, what what would we experience? Yeah, so for for Muslims, when they gather, they gather typically um, five times a day. There would be opportunities for people to come to the mosque and to perform the, the ritual prayers called the Salat. Um, Muslims, uh, as I mentioned earlier, one of the key elements of the Quranic teaching is the fact that humans are naturally prone to forgetting God's ways. And so one of the remedies for that is regular interruptions of a person's schedule with reminders of God. They do this on a daily basis five times as they gather in the mosque and recite these ritual prayers together. Um, they there are physical prostrations, they, they bow down, and there are a number of different movements that they do as a community as they offer these ritualized prayers as a way of reminding themselves to interrupt their otherwise normal day with a reminder of the things of God. On Fridays, however, they have a gathering that tends to be a little bit um, bigger, and there's something that could be comparable to a, a sermon called the chutzah that they an imam will give some instructions from the Quran, some teaching from uh, Muhammad's life and the Islamic traditions. And at that point, you would have a gathering of people who would be in the mosque listening to this khutbah, this sermon, prior to doing their, their ritual prayers. Um, usually it's around the, the noon prayers that they would do that. 
you would notice um, some immediate differences in that most mosques will not have chairs or pews because of the, um, the physical movements that correspond to the prayers. It would just be an open room. It's going to be oriented in a specific direction, and every mosque has its orientation towards Mecca, where all of the Islamic prayers are, are oriented in their direction. Um, and you would also find that men and women in most mosques are going to be separated. Now, there will be some in the West here that maybe have uh, taken a more progressive approach and they've broken down some of those divisions between uh, male uh, prayer rooms and female prayer sections. But for the most part, you would see a, a division as to where men go and where women go. My guest, and boy, he's been interesting, Matthew Bennett, author of The Quran and the Christian, an in-depth look into the book of Islam for followers of Jesus. Well, folks, uh, I'm so glad that you joined us here for the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Uh, We do have a wrap-up right after these messages. And just a reminder, this is the new AM 990 and FM 101.5. The word in Orlando. Stay with us and we'll wrap this show up and uh, send you on your way. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The word. Now, here's Pat. Thanks so much for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. In that first segment, Jim Smith was with us. Uh, The good and beautiful you, discovering the person Jesus created you to be. And then Matthew Bennett came along and uh, talked to us about his book, The Quran and the Christian, an in-depth look into the book of Islam for followers of Jesus. Uh, We do this show. It's the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We do it every weekend. Always so pleased when you join us. And just a reminder, uh, stay plugged in. Uh, to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word. It'll make a huge difference in your life. And uh, uh, speaking of books, by the way, uh, check out my latest book. It's called Every Day is Game Day. Go up to Amazon, get a copy. It's a 365-day devotional with a sports theme, and uh, nothing quite like it's uh, been put out before. I think you'll enjoy it. We'll see you next weekend. Have a great week ahead and stay plugged in all day long to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. I'm Pat Williams. Uh, have a wonderful week ahead. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this time where faith comes by hearing. The new AM 990 and FM 101.5. The word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.